Hey there. Tonight we're going to listen to uh, Spot These Red Flags, The Big Signs You're Dealing with a Narcissist and How to Set Boundaries, Dr. Ramani on Women of Impacts. Check it out, man. Ding, ding, ding. Teachers no is a creative Thank you. But sure. No thing. Even Thank if you, you try to things. teach them how you want to be treated, they ain't listening because they have no empathy. They don't care. You're merely an object to get them what they need. I've heard you give examples, which I always find very powerful because it really is like almost acknowledgement like oh okay dr romani said that if they say this it's a red flag so i love being able to identify very specific red flags and you have said which i would love to talk about a quote of yours you said benefit of the doubt is code for enabling um mm -hmm. so is that you should never give anyone the benefit of doubt can you explain that and break that down for me <laughs> I, I listen you know I, i'm a big fan of the rule of threes you know you, you oh. can try something three times and if, if after the third time it, it, it is you keep giving someone a lot of benefit of the doubt that's on you that's on you at that point to say, okay, you know, but if you're at your 55th benefit of the doubt, you're now an enabler, right? But, you know, yes, one time a person may be late, okay, and they may even tell you, they may even text you and say, my, my, whatever, my work meeting went long, I'm going to be 30 minutes late, so they communicate clearly, or maybe they don't. You might say to them, hey, you know what, when you're going to be this late, my time is really challenged, it would actually be helpful for me to know, I might have actually gone back to my car, run an errand. Then they show up 30 minutes delayed again. And then like, oh, they didn't tell me they live on the other side of town. So you can say, listen, it seems like being late is an issue. So maybe what we should do since you have all this traffic, let's always budget this one hour time. And so maybe we can shift the time. They show up late again. At that point, you're saying, this person's always late. There's no more benefit of the doubt. At that point, you have the conversation with yourself and say, I'm either going to go and accept the lateness and if the lateness doesn't work for me, this isn't going to work. So then you're having, that's what I'm saying, is that the benefit of the doubt maybe once, maybe two. Then there has to be communication on what is happening here. The person may say, I'm never going to be on time. I'm telling you that right now. That's, I, that's not my group. So if we can set things up that I show up when I show up, and you might say, no, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't respect my time. That's fine. Game over. I think the problem is people want it the way they want it. They're like, well, I don't. I, I want to give them benefit of the doubt, and I want them to be on time. I'm like, that's not an option. They're not going to be on time. And I think everyone almost becomes a child. They want what they want. Wanting what you want is fine. Wanting it from something that can't, that can't give it, now we're back to the drawing the water from the empty well. And I think it really then is the responsibility we have to hold for ourselves. And this is where the ancient issues people have of feeling they don't deserve more. So from childhood, people might have gotten the lesson that you don't matter. Um, we don't value you. You're not important. So when that trails us into adulthood, we think like we don't deserve someone to show up on time or who am I to question somebody on whether they're late. But this resentment is growing up in, it, in, in us. It's okay to ask for what you want. And then you have to accept that you may not get it from this particular person. Oh my God, that's so true. And like, I, that like one message that I remind myself every single day, it's communicate. Because just because you're communicating doesn't then mean that you actually no. get it. But there is no. some form of, well, if I've said it, then it means that you have to acquiesce. And like that, no. it just doesn't happen like that. Not. Yeah. No, and especially with some of the narcissistic, because they're not like <laughs> So then you're saying, how do you identify these red flags? 
once you've communicated about something three times, okay, and it has been dishonored, devalued, not listened to, or invalidated, that's it. You're done. And in fact, you're staying at the table after that. It's then time to recognize what are, this is why I'm saying education about narcissism is so important because for many people, they don't get it. So now a person's out there saying, three times I gave someone the benefit of the doubt, three times we had the same issue, now I know. There's, there's no there there. And But again, it's then, it's that work of devaluation and understanding that about yourself that you might say, I don't deserve better. That's your narrative. That's you needing to go to therapy. That's you figuring it out because if the being, you deserve someone to be on time. If that is what you value, you deserve that. If you're staying in it because you think you don't deserve better, then if you've now, you're in a cycle because especially someone narcissistic is never going to change that. And so that's why I'm saying that doing the deep dive on yourself becomes really, really important. And the fantasy always has been for the child. When a person's a child, my parent is going to end up stepping up and being a good person when the parent never turns around. And in adulthood, we play that fantasy out in our adult relationships. I want them to turn around, and it doesn't happen. And so it's really about giving people the knowledge about what this is. So once they're in it, they can say, hmm, this isn't working. Because with a narcissistic person, the earlier you leave, the easier it is to extract. Right? If it's after just a few dates or a few times, then you're sort of like, nobody has that much skin in the game. The problem is, early in the game, the narcissist doesn't like to lose. So they will try to suck you back. They'll try to hoover you back. And that is very seductive. So this person who wasn't on time is all of a sudden sending you flowers or sending you a lot of text messages or doing and saying exactly the things you want because it just turned into a game for them. It's not about them, oh, I hurt this person. I want to be on time. It's more of, oh, I'm not going to lose at this game. And they'll suck them back in and they'll go back to nothing. Oh my god, so you just opened another can of worms. So then how do you identify that instead of going, oh, well, they heard me, and now they're making an effort? Because that's what I would, I think, maybe even revert to initially. It's like, oh, I've, I've voiced my concern. I've said that, you know, they're, they're not um, on mm. time, and it's... Okay, tell me. No, Lisa, I'm pushing back. Because yep. you communicated with them three times and said, please be on time, and they did not listen to you. Only when you said, you know what? This isn't really working. Time oh, really God, matters okay. to me. It's you leaving. That that wasn't you talking. God, that wasn't the yeah. behavior. It was you leaving. And for narcissistic people, they're actually very sensitive to abandonment. And what happens is that sets in a very unhealthy cycle. Because people say, oh, if I'm not getting what I want from this person, I'm just going to threaten to leave. Well, that's an insanely toxic relationship cycle. You're leaving because they're not listening. And now you threaten to leave, and now they're on time. It's not because they're listening to you. It's because they don't want to lose. And, well, no, the social, and then it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Because then you've noticed that by threatening to leave, they then give you attention and love. But it's not for the reasons you're hoping. It's for, oh, my God, that's such a freaking massive breakthrough. Precious metals. The world's most reliable hedge against inflation, recession, yes. and... such a freaking massive breakthrough. Okay, wow, like you've just hit me, I just need like a second to regroup. Um, there's another thing that you said, I'm so loving this by the way, there's another thing that you said which is, uh, that wasn't my intention. And the funny thing is, that's the strategy I now have been using for the last few months when I'm apologizing to someone. I'm literally saying, oh my god, I'm so sorry, that wasn't my intention. Because even, I need them to know that I didn't want to upset them or hurt them. But then I heard you say, if someone says it wasn't my intention, then that is a big red flag. 
Okay, so red flag when they're not showing any care and concern for your feelings. So if somebody gets very upset, you've done something, okay, whatever it may be, and they are upset, and you say, I, I hurt no matter what, you always want to start with empathy, always open with empathy. That's a rule people should hold. Say, I hear you, you're, I can hear you're very upset, and I'm so sorry, and and even worse, I can see that I was, I, I'm responsible, you know, it was our interaction that's, you know, that's contributing to this, you know, please tell me how you're feeling. Always give that person a chance to share. Because what we do is we're so uncomfortable with other people's discomfort with us, we tend to cut that conversation off because we don't want to hear it. But they need to say it. And if they feel safe and we're holding space for them, they'll share it and say, I felt hurt, I felt unheard, I felt devalued. And you'll say, I am so sorry. I want to tell you it wasn't my intention. However, that doesn't matter because you're hurt. You see the difference mm -hmm. between then, somebody who just opens up with, a person says, you hurt my feelings, la 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 la, and then the, the person says, well that wasn't my intention. Ah. You see what I'm saying? So it, it, it's like, it's sort of these words get their power in terms of placement and whether or not the person's building empathy in there. So if you're really, because at that point after you've heard someone and held a safe space for them and empathized with them and really took it in as hard as it was to do that, they have now, they're soothed a bit. They recognize you are safe. So when you say that wasn't my intention after all of that, they'll say, no, 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 I get that it wasn't your intention. I understand that. And they feel safe enough to share an emotion. That means that relationship can now go to the next level of intimacy because it's safe. But if you share something with me, you say, hey, Dr. Robin, I'm, you know, I'm hurt because da, da, da. And I opened this one. I said, well, that wasn't my intention. I just shut you down. I've not opened the door for you to share. And that's what narcissistic people do. They shut the lines of communication through manipulations. That wasn't my intention through gaslighting. There's nowhere to go at that point. So the relationship lacks intimacy because there's no sharing. How on earth do you have that discussion with somebody? So let's say you do say that and they shut you down. Um, as the person on the other side that's talking to a narcissist, how would you con continue a conversation? You don't. You don't. See, that's the thing. There's no workaround on this one. Because now they've shut you down. They're basically saying your emotional world is of no importance to me. You're of no importance to me. Where do you go? And I think the whole the thing that I will never get behind is people saying, no, 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 there has to be a way forward. No, 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 there's not. Because at this point, you're disrespecting yourself staying in this conversation and it is just going to get more abusive. So there is no way forward. So I want to talk about when you first start meeting someone because you said it's easier to kind of identify. Um, and I don't know if you actually use these words, but it's a little simpler to identify. Maybe you're not as close as you can, um, let's say, pull away from them. If you're dating, you notice certain characteristics. But I heard you talk about charisma. Now, charisma to me is intoxicating. When someone's around you and they're charismatic, like, I, I love being around them. But I heard a quote, you're shaking your head, I want to read this quote that you said that I love. Charisma is like heavy perfume or cologne that someone wears when they don't take a shower. It's probably covering, covering up something else. Talk to me about that because I like to kind of think I'm charismatic, but I don't like to think of myself as being, you know, um, a narcissist or, you know, very heavily perfumed. So here, I mean, here's the thing with charisma. It is a, um, 
Charisma, think of it, think of the letter U upside down, okay? When a person has no charisma, let's face it, there's no interest. There's a, it's sort of like it's a lot of work, I get that. Then there's that mid-level charisma, right? It is a somebody who is a, a good listener, a good talker, but they're not sucking all the oxygen out of the room. You know, somebody who's at the far end of that view, the other side of the curve, when it's too much charisma, it feels like you're at a performance. And it's exhausting. But I will say, especially for people who survived narcissistic relationships, I'll say to them, you know what? You don't get to play in the deep end of the charisma pool. Like, we're not going to swim on that side of the pool. Because those folks, more often than not, are a problem. And I wonder if all that big charisma, why the need for the attention? Why do they need all eyes on them? Why are they, are they letting other people talk? Because there's people who can be incredibly charismatic, but also very engaging. But one of the challenges with charismatic people is they have an ability, they, they don't look at people, they look through people. So even though they're looking, talking, they're listening to you and they're looking at you and they're talking to you, it really does seem that they're literally looking right through you to see if someone more interesting is coming through the door. That's a real signature piece of charisma. What's the next better thing than the person who's in front of me? And so, you know, charisma to me, I always say charisma is like an amusement park. Nobody's going to an amusement park every day, but it sure is fun on the day it happens. So I always say, keep the charismatic people around for about two weeks, have some fun, have a flank, but this is probably not a long game. Because the charismatic people, that is a very, almost a cultivated pattern that's designed to draw attention. And in the rarest of cases, charisma accompanies this empathy, kindness, respect. Charisma is also um, conflated with something we call extroversion. Extroverts are people who like being with other people. They draw their energy from other people. They like crowds. They like gatherings. That's in contrast to the blessed introverts. And the introverts do not get their energy from other people. They're, they're introspective. They spend a lot of time in their heads. They actually prefer their group small. They're loyal as heck to those people. And absolutely lovely, but you put them in a crowd of 500 people and they're actually going to look like a deer in the headlights. They're not enjoying themselves. Not because they're anxious, it's just not what they enjoy. And I'm going to be frank with you, I'm an introvert. Yeah, and too. I do not like crowds of people. Very introverted. Like on any given day, I would rather be home either with my child or with my partner or with a small group of friends, but not with groups of people. They, I, and when I spend time with groups of people, I'm as defeated as if I've been up for 24 hours. Like when I give a big speaking, like I speak to sometimes thousands of people at seminars, I'm exhausted. Even though it's on Zoom, I'm exhausted yeah. when it's done. So that, but can a person be a charismatic introvert? I think actually a charismatic introvert might be where charisma might be a little bit more healthy because then they might be able to sort of be engaging and really sort of connect and all of that. But charisma is a tricky pattern because we always assume, Lisa, that it's, it's a good thing. And I think people have to be discerning about charisma. They have to say, is this charismatic person actually listening? Are they are they you know are they participating in an equal way? Are they expecting everyone to fawn over them? Like charisma is like wine. You gotta know what you're drinking. <laughs> I love that. Do you think that people who are more insecure are drawn more to charisma? I think everybody is vulnerable to charisma because we've been taught it's a good thing. What we've never thought is that maybe it's not. How often has somebody said, hey, you're dating, look for the least charismatic person, or look for somebody who doesn't have much charisma. That's not what anyone is telling anyone when they're dating. When you think about online dating platforms, people are a little more charismatic and look more like that. 
they tend to get more of the hits, right? So I think that we have so overvalued this quality societally that I don't necessarily think it's that insecure people are drawn to them. I think everybody is drawn to them. And I will tell you, I'm a rare person. When I meet a charismatic person, I actually have no interest. I walk away. I find them depleting, exhausting, troublesome. Um, I really will look for that person who seems much more centered, less attention-seeking, and that's always a winner. You know, it's always a better competition. Mm. God, that's so powerful. I actually heard you say though that um, people, uh, narcissists can't change. So unhealthy, or what we call pathological personality patterns, are by definition rigid, okay? So these are, the, and the reason these patterns are so rigid is because people with these rigid personality patterns, like narcissism, are not introspective. They don't look inward. People who are narcissistic, because they're so unaware of what the driver is, this deep, unprocessed insecurity, and they're dysregulated, they're very impulsive. So what many narcissistic people will say is, you'll sometimes get, and this is what confuses people in these relationships, they know what's right, and they know what's wrong. So they'll throw one of their tantrums, and they'll be very cruel and mean and reactive, Afterwards, they'll know they did the wrong thing. But that reactivity reduced their tension, right? It, it worked for them. The narcissist's like, oh, I feel relieved that I got out. But everyone else has been devastated by their tantrum. They're like, okay, I feel better now. I let it out. I'm sorry now. And how many times do you have someone blow up on you and then say, I'm sorry? And the resistance to change is because the reactivity of the narcissist is almost like a reflex. Yo, thanks for tuning in to the Governator Show, and we're doing no ads. Signs of dealing with a narcissist and how to set boundaries. They basically want a world where they're like, can't you just let me have my tantrums, and then I can say sorry afterwards? Yeah. And you have to say, that's not how the world works. These people are hurt, and everyone's not designed to be your pacifier. You're not, I mean, nobody gets mad at a six-month-old baby for crying because it's a baby. But in essence, the narcissist wants to be treated like a six-month-old, have their tantrums and still have people snuggle them afterwards, right? That's not how life works. So that's what I mean by they don't change. Some people who are narcissistic will look up and say, okay, I get it. This pattern is toxic. I am not behaving well. I am not being a nice person. I've lost the love of my life. I've become isolated from my family. I've lost my job. They know something's up. And then they might come into therapy. And the therapist, like me, would say, okay, what we need you to be is very mindful. You need to be aware of how you, you're impacting other people. You need to breathe and be present with them. And they'll be like, what? <laughs> I have to care? I have to care about their feelings? Ugh, this is exhausting. And they're actually kind of put off by what's being asked of them, but they know they need to do it. It's almost like, I used to say it, it's almost like trying to lose weight. Someone's like, oh, in order to lose weight, you can't eat sweets, and you can't eat hamburgers, and you can't eat french fries, and you have to eat this. And they're like, that's what it's going to taste? And you're like, yeah, you can't keep eating this thing. They'll say, I don't know about this. So they stay heavy. Or they stay at an unhealthy weight, okay? Same thing with a the narcissist. They're like, if this is what it's going to take, a lot of them say, I don't think so if the narcissist does not recognize the need for change until stuff falls apart for them, okay? They lose their partner. Their kids aren't talking to them. They lose their job. They publicly are shamed for something. They don't, until that point, they're going along their lives and sort of making a mess of everything. 
And so then they get called out and there's real consequences. Like sometimes they get called out and there's no consequences, so they don't care. Consequences might be going to jail. Consequences might be a divorce. Consequences may be losing their money. Consequences may be a whole number of things. And so those consequences feel real to them, especially if they're public consequences. I'm no longer married or I no longer have my partner or I no longer have my money. And then some of the days you have to start taking the deep dive saying nobody's around anymore. Like I'm losing everyone. And then, for, and even then, those many narcissists are much more likely to blame other people for their failures and problems than take responsibility. So they're still blaming. This is my wife's fault. This is the world's fault. This is this person's fault. This is this. This is this. At some point, they're going to say they blamed everyone. Nothing's going your way. And a small percentage of people with this pattern will say, okay, maybe I am responsible for this. And I don't like what my life looks like right now. You tell them what it means to take responsibility. And that's actually something that feels incredibly uncomfortable for them. But all change to a healthier place from an unhealthy place is uncomfortable. Whether it's a person dealing with anxiety, whether it's a person dealing with depression, whether it's a person dealing with panic attacks, they have to go to therapy. They have to tolerate the discomfort. They have to talk about the uncomfortable stuff to get to a healthy place. It's no more different than with narcissism. The challenge is, is that the narcissist is very, very resistant to doing introspective, insightful work. Yeah, and what you just said, so it's basically it's what's happening to them. So they've lost the people so that they're feeling empty. So they think, okay, maybe I need to do something about it. Versus, oh my God, I can't believe I just hurt the love of my life. Correct. Got it. That's very powerful. Very powerful. Um, and I've heard you somewhat um, evolve your data on um, the, the stats between um, how many men and women are narcissists. Obviously, it's a very hard thing to um, identify on like the data, but I know that you were initially saying it was 80-20, and then you said over time you're starting um, to, to realize that now it's actually becoming like 70-30, eventually 60-40. What do you think that is? Is that just us understanding it more? and it displays differently in a man or woman or are you seeing that more women are becoming narcissists? I think men are more socialized for narcissistic traits. We devalue emotion in men. They are mocked and made uh -huh. fun of if they're vulnerable. Like, so the way boys are raised, the way men are raised, they're always going to be more vulnerable. Aggression has a very different, like if a man dominates, that's considered more normative, it's not normative for women. So all of these qualities, like, you know, we devalue empathy in men. Um, that men have more privilege, so they're going to be more entitled. All of that means that just from a socialization perspective, you're always going to have more male narcissists. There's no two ways about it. However, interestingly, as women do get in some in some places of their lives, some a little more power, some women do have privilege, those women are going to be more vulnerable to be narcissistic. It's just that for men, they tend to have more of the overt symptoms of narcissism, the, the big grandiosity, the big arrogance, the dominance, the control those are sort of very male kinds of patterns. Women may have more victimized, passive-aggressive patterns, so they may not be as in your face, but still narcissistic. I'm gonna share with you all of the habits that I've learned that can help you achieve no words, that, that passive-aggressive pattern. So they may not be as in your face, but still narcissistic. And so it, it's not because we don't say it's not a word we use with women as much, but oh, they're definitely out there. And I think that sadly, as people get more power in a society, there's a greater vulnerability of it. But there's also, it's also a very developmental pattern too. Narcissism doesn't spring up when somebody's 30. It's something that was developed through childhood. So 
girls you know, and um, female children are going to be as affected by this as, as male children. And so we're going to see that those impacts of parenting are there. But it could very well be that as, as, as girls go through, um, go through their childhood, they have more opportunities to develop the emotional muscles because it's more part of their play. You know, whereas for boys, if, if they're crying, they're made, you're to see your loser boys don't cry, girl cries is actually permitted. And so we actually create, we have to create more permission for men to be emotional. That would actually be a big part, early, young and early. Parents should not chastise the sons for crying. We should create spaces for boys to cry. That's a big socialization piece that's linked to, to sex and gender that we really have to pay attention to, and we're not good at that. So all of that's also playing a role. Wow, that's so powerful. So thinking about a young boy being grandiose or over the top is almost rewarded for it. And if a girl is, she's told to not do it. So over time, as we become adults, um, with the narcissist male is just almost forgiven, but the female has somewhat, um, you even said passive aggressive. So it's very different behavior, right? Than being overtly um, overpowering, overbearing. Yeah, it's very, so a woman would not have been, those, those traits would not have been shaped and socialized right. with her in the same way. And so, um, you know, and, and listen, there's a whole new world of conversations that's going to come up with, with people who are trans, right? Who, were, who, who grew up with socialized to a, to a set of gender roles, and they themselves are struggling with that. And they're saying, no, 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 you know, that, that, like, please allow me to be the, the gender that's right for me. We're not, we're just beginning to explore these issues of trans people and queer people. So, you know, it's, I think we've always used it through a very heteronormative kind of a lens. So, but when we think of it in that traditional lens of boys, girls, men, women, is that definitely that when a woman, somebody's viewed as a woman, is speaking more um, assertively, clearly, in a commanding manner, much more likely to be pathologized for that, be called aggressive, to be called unattractive. And then if a man is speaking in that way, he's viewed as a leader. He, they'll use the word assertive there. They'll view him as authoritative. But remember, these are developmental traits that come out of insecurity, that sometimes come out of trauma. Boys, girls are both differentially affected by this. It's just how we value emotion and things like that, the face of it. That might mean that more boys go in that direction than girls. Assume that somebody is either with a narcissist or has someone in their life. Um, I know that you have almost like certain rules that you advise mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So there's one phrase that you use, which is um, don't give your psychological passwords to them. Mm-hmm. I love that. Can you talk to me about yeah. that? Yeah. So it's actually brilliant. Again, I always I make sure that so many of this, so much of this is accumulated wisdom. There's actually somebody I've worked with who said to me, instead of calling it gray rocking, why don't you call it firewalling? Somebody who works in the tech industry. And I thought, Interesting, say more, and we talked about it, and her husband's a big tech guy, and, and we find, I said, this is, you're absolutely brilliant, because when you think about a firewalled computer, right, it's very restrictive on what it lets in, right, it'll say, this is, this is a virus, don't let this in, and it's also very restrictive on what you let out, like, you know, and they'll be after, are you sure? I say don't, part of firewalling, you should, I can't give you all my passwords, I adore you, but I wouldn't well, give you all my passwords, right? Right, yes, exactly, and so... We don't handle, we're so, we're literally more protective of the password we have for some game on our computer than we are with the most sacred parts of our psyche. Like, what? You know, I mean, that doesn't even make, but that's, it doesn't make sense, but everyone does that. They just hand it over. And so this idea is that you wouldn't just give away your 
normal passwords. Don't give away your psychological passwords, your deep vulnerabilities. Your, because I'll tell you why, they'll use them against you. Narcissistic people will always weaponize your vulnerabilities. So a lot of times early in a relationship, people open up and they share their vulnerabilities. Something that's really, really sinister about narcissistic relationships is during that love bombing phase, you look at someone and say, tell me, tell me the things you least like about yourself. They're like, ooh, we're sharing. They're putting that in some sort of evil vault in their brain that then when either you're in the devaluing cycle or the discarding cycle, you're having an argument, they'll pull that vulnerability out. It could be about anything. It could be about body image. It could be about something that happened to your childhood. It could be about your family, a dream you have, and they will use it against you. And for a lot of people, it feels like the air has been sucked out of them. The most vulnerable thing that a person could share, they've shared with them. And it's like, in fact, in, in a cult structure, it's often called collateral. Like, it's like, I'm, we're gonna get, we've gotta get something from them so we can almost blackmail someone down the road. It's like that, maybe not at that level, but it's, it's that ability to say, now I've got something on you so I know I can hurt you. And so that's what I mean about don't hand away your psychological password. Don't give away those most vulnerable parts of yourself until someone really gains that trust. People might be sitting there saying, well, isn't that, are you telling people not to be vulnerable? Well, absolutely not. I'm saying learn your people. Again, it's that two sets of ways of engaging in the world. And it's about taking a moment to get to know someone. If red flags are coming up, pay attention and hold back. You will get to the vulnerability that this is a healthy person. You'll get there, but you don't need to get there in the first week. But I think so many people want to be heard and seen and understood that they rush to that moment like, let me tell them everything and now we're in love. And I have watched people be destroyed having people take those vulnerabilities they shared with someone and having them be used against them in all kinds of terrible ways. Yeah, I very much believe that vulnerability should never be weaponized. Mm -hmm. in any situation. Not. But I do understand that other people accidentally may use a vulnerability mm -hmm. in a heated moment and then regret it. So is it how they then handle it afterwards that right. dictates which... Yeah. Well, I'm not asking anyone here to be superhuman. You know, we've all done it. You've done it, I've done it in a moment. You know, could said something and say, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. It is that very rapid attempt at making amends, doing the reparations, and not doing it again. Right? You see what I'm saying? So you can't just keep doing it because one thing narcissistic relationships often consist of is the apologize cycle. It's like the rinse, lather, repeat. Like, I'm sorry. Oh, and then do it again. I'm sorry. Do it again. I'm sorry. Mm, no, I mean, I, I'll give you one. You know, saying I never should have said something like that. Then don't do it again. And when they do it again, it feels like then I'm sorry. It's just like a get out of jail free card. Like, okay, I'm just going to use this again. And so it really, it, it it's... It's the intent and it's how quickly the reparations take place that a person immediately says, I had no, no place doing that. And I kind of tell you, Lisa, in some cases, there are no fly zones. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, for example. You'd say anything, but you go after my kids, we're done. <laughs> and when I work with clients, I tell them, it's okay to have those no fly zones. It's because I'm saying, I'm being too extreme. Right? I'm like, oh, do I really shut someone off? And you, I said, you're okay with doing that. If they went to a place that feels sacred to you, that feels untouchable to you, and it went there, that's abuse. That's a violation of a primal boundary. It's okay to say never again. Mm -hmm.
Does that apply to everyone in your life, like your parents as well as a partner? It gets tricky there, Lisa, because I think, especially if you had a narcissistic parent, one of the most painful legacies of a narcissistic parent is that they do. They will use those vulnerabilities against the child. One thing I've classically heard with narcissistic parents and their children is they go after appearance. They go after weight. They go after how someone looks. They, um, because it is a superficial personality style, right? And they often want the child to be a reflection of how they want to be in the world. So and if it may not be straight the appearance, it might even be things like an ability. It might be things like soccer or school or whatever it may be, right? And so in those cases, the parent knowing that the child struggles with whatever will actually use that as a way to manipulate the child or get the child to do what they want. And then the child sort of lives in this sadness, like always oh, I'll try to be what the parent wants them to be. The kid will be like, oh, if I could play tennis really well, my parent would pay attention. Maybe they're just not a natural tennis player. And then the child really goes out and tries to hit a tennis ball or whatever. And then the parent's like, oh, really? Like, you want me to waste my time playing tennis with you? This is way below me. And he's like, oh my God, he's killing himself to get you to notice them. But this will fast forward into adulthood. They will continue to do this to their child in adulthood. Parents are tricky. Narcissistic parents are tricky because a lot of people, for example, may love one parent and really have had a difficult other parent. Some people will feel as though really had a difficult parent, but I love my siblings, I love my grandparents. So th and those other people in the system don't want you to distance from that one parent. I always say to people, once you identify the difficult people in the system, you can still be in that system, but you've got to be mindful. So it really does about maybe limiting the time, finding a time away from the narcissistic parent to be with those other people, like your grandparent or your sibling or your other parent or whatever. And also to recognize you were the child, they were the parent, they dropped the ball. It's not your job to go back there and teach them. And a lot of people, I've seen 15-year-old people still be hoop jumping to get and, and trying to show up for a parent, no different than a six-year-old trying to juggle in the living room just to get their parents to notice them. It doesn't stop. But the hurt that a narcissistic parent can inflict on an adult child is just as potent as if that person is fine. So do you notice the correlation between people that have narcissistic parents that then go for a narcissistic partner? Yeah, there's an incredible vulnerability. And I talk about this. I talk about people who are sort of are narcissism magnets without knowing it. Like, and one of the things on that list of magnets is exactly what I'm saying, having come from a system characterized by this. There's a couple of reasons. One of the most intoxicating, tragically intoxicating things a person can experience is familiarity. Chewy's Blue Box event is on now, June 21st through 24th, with 40% off your first ownership order. Don't miss it. Hey, Arizona, our kids are ready to explore, discover, and have fun. Don't want no ads. We have a magical connection, and I'm having a deja vu. I kind of put my head in my hand saying, no, 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 this is not good for you, because the things that are familiar to you are actually quite toxic and poisonous. And that sort of familiarity of... For example, it's, it's something we call working through. I 
couldn't win over my narcissistic father, but I'm going to win over this guy. Ah. Right? And yeah, so then yeah, they go yeah. right into that same cycle. And because it's so familiar, it's almost hard to get that, that, that view to say, this isn't healthy for me, or to get out. Because the whole life almost becomes this activity of trying to get this, um, to trying to do all the things. I'm going to jump through the hoops. I'm going to win this time. And a lot of times, people will convince themselves, like, if I can get it right here, then it'll be okay. Then I would have, I you know, sort of figured out what I needed to figure out from childhood. But the fact of the matter is, this adult narcissistic person is going to treat you as badly as your narcissistic parent. And this time it's going to get uglier because it'll be things like the gaslighting and the manipulation and the rage. And for some people, that inner dialogue, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I, um, I have no right to be doing this. Who am I to be pursuing my dreams? I need to stay in my lane. All of that stuff, that kind of inner dialogue, when it gets reinforced by a partner, people actually really get stuck in relationships. That's what I was going to say. You just listed a few. Um, can you repeat those actually? What are the things that, it's actually interesting, it never dawned on me that this is the language we say to ourselves, I'm not enough. What are you doing? Stay in your lane. Is that the same language that a narcissist would also say to you as like a red flag? Absolutely. They say to you, stay in your lane. Absolutely. They say, stay in your lane. You should. And you know what it is? It's, it's, a, it's more, they do it more masterfully than that. They plant just enough of a seed of doubt that you're the one who ends up cultivating that seed. So they'll say things like, oh, really, that job? Like, okay, you know, I get why you'd want to do it, but you sure that's not you getting ahead of yourself? So it's just enough like, okay, go ahead and do it, but you sure about that? That's the kind of thing that they'll do. So now the thing you thought you could do, already they put this new seed of doubt in there are saying, you know, things like, oh, I don't know, other people at that job, they've gone to some really fancy universities. like cool that they want you, but you sure about that? And then for many people, that's when they'll give up on themselves. Yeah. Do you actually truly be happy in an narcissistic relationship? Because not sharing your vulnerability with someone, not listening when they give you advice because you don't trust them, because you're worried that they're trying, oh, you sure you should go for that job? Like, I really want to be able to take my husband's advice for true advice. Mm -hmm. And so not being able to share that, not being able to, um, I've heard you say that, um, and not to share your wins with your the narcissist? No, not your wins, not your losses, and not your vulnerabilities. Don't share any of them. Okay, so I want to go down that, actually, not sharing the wins, but um, if you don't mind, like, can you actually be truly happy? It's, such a, it's, such a, it's almost a philosophical question, yeah, isn't it, right? Yeah, I don't know that a person would ever be fully happy or satisfied or nourished in that relationship. I have seen people amazingly so figure out workarounds where they derive i don't know joy from their kids their pets their hobbies their jobs their other supports in their world if if provided the narcissistic person in their life isn't super controlling obviously all of that gets very difficult if the narcissistic person has someone on a really sort of a short tie to say like you can't do this you can't do that really isolates them from their world when that dynamic is in place i do not think it's possible to be happy but if you're in a situation where you're kind of able to do some things that matter to you
you. I've seen people sort of carve out moments of happiness, but if this person's a day-to-day picture in someone's life, not so much. I mean, I do think it takes a toll. And I've worked with people who've been in these relationships 30, 40, 50 years, and it hollows them out. Is that inevitable? I do think it's somewhat inevitable. How many times are you going to be invalidated? How many times is somebody going to walk around in the world and feel completely unmirrored in what is to be a loving relationship? And especially, they aren't able to build up those other spaces in their lives. Some people figure out the workarounds and they recognize like, okay, this is not what I would have loved for myself or wanted for myself, but I will try to make the most out of what I can. And then they take almost a very existential point of view. This moment's beautiful, I'll be in this moment kind of thing. And so they do their best at sort of deriving the joy from a given moment here. And this is, again, that's the sort of high level existential work it's hard to do because you look around at other people and they are in love and their partners are appreciative of them and they are in a loving space and their experience has absolutely no resemblance to that they feel very alone and keep in mind Lisa, most people don't get this i so many folks who they go out and they're like finally i figured out why this relationship is difficult my partner's really narcissistic they're bit of empathy that makes a whole laundry list like, I don't get that. Like, you look good in pictures together, or it seems like you're both at the dinner together, and so it's this people not getting it. Like, well, it can't be that bad. Can't you just explain to them what's going on? No, because they're not listening. And that's hard. Imagine a child. A child growing up with parents who never see them, who never hear them. When I say see them, like, notice them. Never hear them. Never have empathy for them. Never have interest for them. A lot of people grow up like that. Now jump that into an adult relationship. It takes a tremendous toll on a child. As an adult, you're not immune to those same effects, especially in what feels like it's supposed to be your primary close relationship. Mm. Yeah, God. And <laughs> how many of the people, though, actually in those 30, 40 years, because you say some people say, like, for the rest of their life, still try and change them? Because I, I love it when you're like, you can't change yeah. them. But how many people just like, yes, but. If I only did this, and mm-hmm. is that how much of that is why people stay in those relationships? Well, there's there's kind of a standard list. There's a short list of reasons people stay in a relationship: hope, fear, guilt, and lack of information. Okay, hope that it'll change. We've thrown that hope out. Yeah. Fear of being alone. Some people say that the devil I know is better than the angel I don't. Like they're saying, I know this, I know how this works, I know our respective families, I have a routine. They're scared. They're scared. They're scared of living alone. They're scared of um, having their role in society change. They're scared of no longer perhaps being in a marriage or something like that. Then there's guilt. Remember, not all narcissism is just a big, exploitative, grandiose person that's kind of holding court and sucking all the oxygen out of the room. In many cases, there's what we call vulnerable narcissism, and that's more of this sort of sullen, resentful, angry, victimized form of narcissism. So instead of the entitlement coming out as, hey, I should be the VIP in the line, the entitlement comes out more as, nothing ever works out for me. I deserve so much more because I'm such a smart person. It makes me sick to watch all these other people succeeding when I'm so much smarter. See, that's a different feel of entitlement, right? And note that vulnerable narcissistic style actually takes a tremendous toll in relationships. But when people want to leave those relationships, they feel really guilty. How comfortable are you being uncomfortable? 
See, the answer to that question I'm very comfortable with the answer. Because there is a sort of very anxious, depressed feel. And then there's lack of information. The number of people out there saying, well, maybe if I just learn to communicate, maybe if we go to a couple's retreat, maybe if we do this, maybe if we do that. I believe in empathy. I think empathy is something that we are losing in this world quickly, and yet it is so crucial to me to, to actually saving this world, literally down to climate change. Empathy is everything, right? The biggest thing, in fact, we're right now, it's actually one of the videos in pre-production we're working on right now, is this idea of people feeling like they have been through so much in multiple narcissistic relationships that they're, they're starting to lose their empathy across the board. In fact, there's a name for it. It's called uh, compassion fatigue. That we save that more for healthcare providers, psychologists, that kind of thing. After a while, there's so much empathy you can put out unless there's some coming back in, right? But compassion fatigue is a little different than just feeling like I'm empathied out. Like I am being treated badly every day, 20 times a day. I don't believe truly empathic people lose their empathy. I think people get worn out and they get sad and they, um, they feel more isolated from people but i actually do believe we can have tremendous in fact we must have tremendous empathy for narcissistic people otherwise we lose our, we lose the best part of ourselves and i'll be damned if somebody who's toxic is going to be the reason the most beautiful part of myself gets turned off and so and i feel that for everyone do not ever pawn that off but empathy doesn't mean being a sucker Empathy is understanding whatever happened in your story that brought you here, I am so sorry. And I really hope the path forward takes you to a place where you can work on this. I really do, but not on my time. Again, another brilliant suggestion sent by people who watch the channel. And they, they were basketball fans. And I'm a basketball fan, too. I think it's, a, it's an elegant sport. In that moment, the hang time is that moment when a player is coming up to the hoop. And it almost feels like they're flying right before they put the, the ball in, in, in the basket. And sometimes hang time feels like it's really long, like it's almost eternal if you're watching it. And they were using hang time as an analogy of that moment you're suspended and trying to figure out like, what is this? Like, is this person really toxic? Is this really narcissistic kind of personality style? Like what is happening here? And it's when you're continuing to give second chances, like maybe I'm reading this wrong, or what, what's going on here? I don't want anyone watching this thinking it's black and white. Like one day I'll go up this process. It's a process. I always say that there's the click moment. There's a moment in your mind you're with someone in your life. Okay, I'm now a little uncomfortable. It's often a red flag, but it's a little more than red flags. Mm. My, by now you've probably seen 5, 10, even 15 red flags. It is. It's like an audible click. Like, okay, now I'm uncomfortable. What do I do? At the moment of the audible click, people are still saying, okay, maybe I'm reading this wrong, but we're starting to step out of the room. We're creating a <laughs> distance. Like, okay, this isn't cool. This is not an affiliation I want. This is not a relationship I want. Whatever. 
slowly start stepping away. That moment of starting to identify it and then get out, that's what's being called hang time. Here's where it gets tricky. If you are the one who decides to leave a narcissistic relationship, I can guarantee you it's going to go badly. It'll always go badly. We don't always realize this, but people who are nar who have narcissistic, difficult personalities have struggle with abandonment because it means they've lost control of the narrative. So if somebody tries to leave them, all hell is going to break loose. All hell is going to break loose. If they decide to leave you, they're just going to go. But if you decide to leave them and they don't want you leaving, you are in for the fight of your life. And this is why it's important to identify and get out of it, get out of it early. The earlier you get out, the less the harm. But if you're in for a while and they don't want out, they it will be an absolute mess. Which is why hang time is an interesting moment. Because for some people during that suspension, they're hanging in there saying, how big a mess is this going to be when I leave? So some people stay because they're so afraid of the disaster that's going to ensue when they leave. When I work with folks who are about to start, for example, embark on a divorce from a narcissist, I say, I'll tell them, for as bad as you think this is about to be, it is going to be 10 times worse. We are going to battle. And I will not, I will not soften this for you. And every single time, whether it's a marriage, whether it's workplace, whatever it is, it is it, almost like these people look shredded when it's over. And a couple of them have said, I'm so glad I'm out. But had I really known how bad this was going to be, I don't know that I would have the courage to do this. In order for us to be able to identify so that when we either go in a relationship, start a relationship, or continue a relationship, we just do it with our eyes wide open. And so where I would like to start is for you to break down the four types of narcissists. Uh, narcissists. I don't think there's actually more than four. Oh, so you're, yeah. gonna, you're asking for more than you bargained for. Um, so there's sort of the classical grandiose narcissist. And this is often what we think of as sort of the textbook, arrogant, charming, charismatic, confident, you know, sort of really holds the room. And while initially they're incredibly enticing, right, because they're so much larger than life, they can often be quite successful. Before long, probably in anywhere if you're dating them, between four and 12 weeks, the blush is going to fall off the rose kind of thing. And it's going to be that they're much more, you'll see that they're getting bored with you, that their superficiality really becomes problematic. They are very contemptuous and dismissive and invalidating, largely because they're so insecure. We go then to the covert narcissist. The covert narcissist is much more vulnerable, sullen, angry at the world. And instead of the big, arrogant entitlement, what you tend to see more of is it's an angry, victimized entitlement. Like, the world never gives me what I want. Everybody's against me. Everyone's out to get me. And so there's just sort of, it gets heavy and tiresome. But initially, covert narcissists feel very anxious, like you want to rescue them. Then there are the malignant narcissists. Malignant narcissists are probably the most dangerous of the narcissists. Not only do they I have all true. the usual qualities of narcissism, the lack of empathy, the Amber entitlement, heard. the grandiosity, all of that, they also are very exploitative. They can be paranoid. They're sadistic. Yeah. There is a there is a much more deliberate cruelty. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to see sort of, if not physical violence, a lot more emotional abuse in these relationships. People feel very menaced and unsettled. You might see more coercive control here. 
the fourth kind of narcissist is someone we Amber call a communal narcissist. The communal <laughs> narcissist cares very much about being viewed by the public as a as a savior or a rescuer. I'm rescuing animals. I'm doing. I'm making this important documentary. I'm so important. What I do for the world is so important. And so the world often they get their validation. The communal narcissist has all the usual stuff of narcissism, but they get their validation by being viewed as a do-gooder or a humanitarian or something like that. But they're actually just as interpersonally difficult as any of the other narcissistic people. But people will often miss it because they're so they look so wonderful. There's they're been so the charismatic. Narcissist. These are the narcissistic relationships where you're literally not even seen. Well, best friend it's is like though, that. Unless they need you, it's almost like my coffee cup. I'm not going to notice my coffee cup unless I need my coffee. But otherwise, I'm not going to pay attention to it all day. They tend to view people through that lens of seeing them as conveniences and objects they turn to when they need them. They mm -hmm. almost have very little need for people unless it's forwarding their cause. And mm -hmm. people in these relationships will literally feel as though they're invisible and completely unseen. Then there's the self-righteous narcissist. The self-righteous <laughs> narcissist actually initially seem really moralistic and loyal. Whether that moralism comes through like religion or commitment to like the cause, <laughs> there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do things. They're incredibly judgmental of other people. Self-righteous narcissists tend to live very well-ordered lives. So they'll mock the way other people eat, the way they dress, if they didn't go to the right school, if they don't live in the right place. And so people in relationships with self-righteous narcissists feel <laughs> oh like they're God. always the 12-year-old child who's being scolded for their bad habits. So there's actually more than this Yeah, before. that was so amazing. I have so many questions. So let's even just take the last the last one. As you were describing it, I also think of it as like, wow, that's also the behavior of someone that's extremely insecure in themselves. So they're putting someone else down because they're insecure. But would you say that if someone's insecure, they're directly a narcissist? How would you separate the two and go, wow, they're a narcissist or they're just wounded, they're insecure, and so they're doing that to um, protect themselves? Okay, so everybody's insecure. I have, I've, I can count on one hand the number of human beings I've met on this planet who are just simply secure in themselves. Mm -hmm. Because here's the bottom line. Secure people don't lash out at other people, right? Secure people. <clears throat> this is very important information.
Pronto. Um, no contact though, it's probably almost a year now, what? No contact would be nice if you didn't share a child. Yeah, um, TikTok has some great content about this, by the way. So yeah, thanks for, uh, checking in with my Christopher Governor to show. Uh, you must be as interested in psychology as I am to be here with me at the 58 mark. So, oh, oh my god, oh, it's about midnight, it's the witching hour. <clears throat> and please do wear a mask in public indoor spaces, keep your distance. Don't let anybody get up and all in your face. Um, and also, uh, make sure that you call Congress, 202-224-3121, and call the White House, 202-456-1111, and call the Department of Justice, 202-514-2000 and tell them so. Tell them we have we demand fucking insurrection charges. You can say that you know they they can't they can't um they can't commit you uh, say you committed any crime to tell them to do their fucking job. Do your fucking job. Okay. With all due respect, I mean, depending on, it totally, it depends on the, um, Congress member, but pretty much almost all of them are, are shite meisters, okay, and, except for the progressives in Congress, they're the only good ones, Bernie Sanders is 